Welcome to The Art Career, a space breaking barriers by letting you sit in on candid, straightforward conversations with leading art professionals in visual arts, writing, music, theater, and film. I'm your host, Emily McElreath, and I invite you to join me for inspirational conversations with icons of our generation. We dive deep into topics like self-development, career trajectories, mental health, social justice, and the artists that have changed our lives. With each episode, our mission is to empower you, expanding your journey through the arts. Join us for new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The Art Career is thrilled to announce its partnership with Glimpse. Glimpse Guides are a collection of luxury guidebooks with an outstanding social mission we are proud to support. Featuring the best of hotels, restaurants, activities, and itineraries, for each featured city, Glimpse Guides also include recommendations and travel tips by a curated selection of tastemakers. The most exciting part of Glimpse Guides is 100% of their profits go to Give a Glimpse, which provides funding for educational travel scholarships for underserved students. What is better than that? Glimpse believe that travel is the most important form of education and it is their mission to send as many deserving students abroad as possible. Glimpse also offers luxury trip design services with VIP perks like early check-in, room upgrades, restaurant and spa credits, welcome gifts, and more. Glimpse has quickly become our one and only travel planner. Go check them out at glimpseguides.com. And tell founder Jordan Rhodes that the Art Career Podcast sent you. Welcome to the True Crime Gallery, the dark side of art, the season three finale of the Art Career Podcast, where we are going to uncover the dark and twisted tales where art and crime intersect. Today, we are going to bring you a few bone-chilling stories that will leave you completely captivated, as they did me. From the horrifying use of modern art as an instrument of torture, to a crime hidden behind one of the Louvre's prized masterpieces, and the disturbing artistic endeavors of a notorious serial killer clown, who I'm sure you've heard of. Brace yourself for these haunting narratives. And as always, thank you for tuning in to The Art Career. I want to send a special thank you out to my summer marketing director, Ruby Sloan, who has helped write and produce this episode. And I also want to send a very special shout out to Ben Galloway, who does all of the editing and was so brilliant with the music for this true crime miniseries. This has been a lot of fun for us to make. And with that, I'm going to take you back into the darkness. 
Our first story takes us back to the time of Franco's regime in Spain. While modern art was condemned and labeled as degenerate art in Germany, a French artist named Alphonse Lorenkic had a sinister plan. Initially detained for financial delinquency, Alphonse seduced the Spanish military information service. I don't know how he did it, but he did, and collaborated with them to design innovative instruments of torture, drawing inspiration from artists affiliated with the Bauhaus school he employed the principles of geometric abstraction and surrealism to create psychological torture cells. These secret prisons known as chekas became the dark side of avant-garde theories on color, light, and their associations. Now, listen to this. These cells were ingeniously crafted to disorient and mentally break their victims. The beds were inclined, causing prisoners to slip and fall when they dozed off. The floors were covered with a maze of bricks, preventing them from lying down, even on the floor, preventing them from sitting or even walking straight. The walls displayed geometric patterns reminiscent of Bauhaus, Kandinsky, or Klee, with a dominant color of green to evoke melancholy, stress, and sadness. To further torment the prisoners, Lauren Kick incorporated kinetic art elements such as flashing lights and abstract patterns leading to rapid psychological deterioration. Clocks with hands set to move in 20-hour cycles distorted the prisoner's perception of time while an amplified metronome provided an auditory torture. I really can't think of anything worse than being in that cell. Tragically and obviously, many victims could not withstand the physical and psychological torment, ultimately confessing to anything their torturers desired. Absolutely anything, obviously. Lauren Kick's reappropriation of modern arts principles ended when he was executed in 1939 at the young age of 37. This season, we are thrilled to announce our subscription program. We invite listeners to join our community and unlock exclusive content and opportunities, such as live streams and the ability to book private consultations during the art career's very new weekly office hours. Head on over to theartcareer.supercast.com to learn more. That's theartcareer.supercast.com. Com, and we'll look forward to welcoming you into our community. Our 
next story reveals a crime concealed behind one of the Louvre's most treasured masterpieces, Bartolome Esteban Murillo's The Civilian Gentleman. The narrative revolves around Suzanne de Canson, an affluent French homosexual heiress from a family renowned for their paper manufacturing business. Suzanne and her sister inherited a substantial fortune, including valuable artworks, after their father's passing in 1958. So this was not that long ago. Suzanne refused to part with the painting, considering it an irreplaceable family treasure. However, tragedy struck when Suzanne's personal life took a turn. Alienated by her family due to her assumed homosexuality, Suzanne found solace in a lawyer named Robert Boissonnet. Unfortunately, Robert and his accomplice, Joelle Pesnell, who posed as Suzanne's lady-in-waiting, exploited her senility to liquidate her assets, including valuable artworks. It was absolutely horrible. And it took a horrific turn when Suzanne was found dead in appalling conditions, confined to a windowless room, deprived of basic needs, and abandoned by her so-called companion. The subsequent legal battles to reclaim Murillo's artwork involved complex transactions and deceitful actions by various parties. Eventually, the Louvre Museum intervened, negotiating the purchase of the painting from Pensnell for a modest sum. This scandalous tale was one of the earliest to expose the murky underbelly of the art market, with the Louvre facing scrutiny for acquiring a piece with such a dubious origin. Despite the museum's efforts to bring justice and preserve the artwork, it remains unlikely that Murillo's masterpiece will ever return to its original family collection. As someone extremely passionate about mental health, seeing a therapist is essential to my quality of life. We'd like to take this moment to announce how thrilled we are to partner with the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp. If you think you might be feeling anxious, depressed, or even just overwhelmed, being alone with your thoughts can be an isolating feeling. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. It's that easy. Join the 2 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. And just for the Art Career Podcast listeners, we will offer 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com 
slash T-A-C. That's better, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P dot com slash T-A-C. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring the Art Career Podcast. We're now going to turn to another tale that delves into the twisted mind of one of America's most notorious serial killers, John Wayne Gacy, known as Pogo the Clown. Gacy, who led a double life as a construction company owner and a volunteer clown for hospital children, hid a horrifying secret beneath his jovial facade. Over time, Numerous young men went missing from Gacy's vicinity, leading the police to investigate his activities. In December 1978, their search of Gacy's home uncovered a nightmarish reality. Hidden beneath the house in crawl spaces and foundations, they discovered the remains of 26 victims. More bodies were found in the garden and nearby river. Gacy eventually confessed to the rape, torture, and murder of not 26, but 33 young boys. While serving his sentence, Gacy immersed himself in painting, creating artworks influenced by his clown persona and even incorporating references to Disney characters, which is just super disturbing. Exploiting his notoriety, of course, an unscrupulous undertaker named Rick Statton became Gacy's agent, selling his disturbing artwork through galleries and auction houses. Shockingly, these gruesome pieces associated with murderabilia found buyers at significant prices, despite their dark origins. It is believed that John Wayne Gacy painted over 2,000 paintings while on death row, which his attorney auctioned in 1994. Some of them were bought and destroyed in a bonfire attended by many people, including family members of the victims, while others toured galleries across America. The tales of twisted intellects doesn't stop here. Killers such as Andre Crawford with one of his most well-known pieces, First Kill. We're going to link all of these in the show notes, but First Kill presented to us a portrait of a woman screaming and just absolutely splattered with blood. This killer not only fantasized about his past, but surely plays up to his reputation when he created this work of art. Henry Lee Lucas, known as the Highway Stalker, never had his death count confined to a singular number. He was convicted for the murder of 11 people, including the gruesome death of his own mother, but has personally admitted to numbers all the way from 
60 to over 100 and even to this hell-inducing number of 3,000 victims. Several films have been made about Lucas, including the popular 80s cult film Confessions of a Serial Killer and Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. His works are unbelievably eerie. They make your skin crawl, complete ice through your veins. One of these included the unnamed piece of a monstrous figure, completed with a blue background, blood oozing from its razor-sharp teeth, and a death stare with deep red eyes. People have speculated Lucas's inspiration for it, mostly landing on the idea of it being a self-portrait of himself. You should pause this and take a look at this piece. Unfortunately, it's a pretty dark and interesting drawing. I think what's tough is that, you know, looking at some of these works, you do see talent behind some of these serial killers' paintings they made. So keeping this story in mind and all of these stories in mind, it raises some questions about the fascination behind the human mind. So I bring to you the definition of murderabilia. Murderabilia, also known as murderabilia, is a term identifying collectibles related to murders, homicides, the perpetrators, or other violent crimes. The term was coined by Andy Cahan, director of the Houston Police Department's Crime Victims Office. To be quite blunt, murder makes money, just like sex sells. What happens when the art of criminals gains notoriety, when it becomes a sought-after and collected group of artworks? It's a paradoxical phenomenon that raises uncomfortable questions about our fascination with darkness and the blurred lines between appreciation and endorsement. In the realm of true crime, where real-life horrors are dissected and analyzed, the art created by criminals occupies a super unique space. It becomes a tangible connection to their minds, a glimpse into their twisted imagination. But does this fascination perpetuate a cycle of glorification, giving them a platform they don't deserve. On the other hand, some argue that studying the art of criminals can provide valuable insights into their psychology and motivations. It offers an opportunity to better understand the depths of human depravity and potentially uncover clues that could help prevent future crimes. But where do we draw the line between studying and exploiting again? Perhaps the allure, surely the allure, lies in the dichotomy of the forbidden. As humans, we are drawn to what is forbidden, what challenges societal norms from the beginning of time. The art of criminals represents a forbidden realm, obviously, a glimpse into a world that we instinctively reject. 
as stable and healthy humans, yet can't help but be captivated by. Murderabilia attracts individuals of all kinds to grab a quick fix dollar on selling the art of killers. Eric Holler from Jacksonville, Florida quoted from his own words, I don't pay these guys outright for their items, but if these guys send me a packet of artwork and just say, hypothetically, I make $1,000 off a criminal, I'm going to help them out. Holler continues on to say that he understands the treacherous crimes these individuals have committed, but that won't stop him from dealing in the art market and even sometimes sending the killer himself a piece of the profit. So where is the line with this? Where is the line of ethics in this? To what extent is this market one to pursue? Art has always been a reflection of society. As we know, a mirror held up to its darkest corners. It forces us to confront uncomfortable truths, question our beliefs, and grapple with the complexity of the human condition. The art of criminals in its disturbing and unsettling nature amplifies this confrontation, forcing us to confront the darkest aspects of our own humanity. Yet, it is crucial to remember the victims, those whose lives were irrevocably affected by these criminals' actions. Their stories should never be overshadowed or reduced to mere fascination with their perpetrator's art. We must strive for a delicate balance, which we don't have all of the time, appreciating the artistic expression while never forgetting the real life consequences. As we explore in this series the intersections of art and crime, we must engage in critical discussions about the ethical implications of supporting and consuming the art of criminals. It is an uncomfortable and complex territory that requires thoughtful consideration. In this case, can we separate the art and the artist? And this question, you know, goes back throughout the history of art. Are we able, and it's so prevalent now, are we able to separate this, these two? And it's a tough one. So as we conclude this episode, I leave you with a question. What does it say about our society when the art of criminals becomes a commodity, when it is sought after and collected? Is it a reflection of our collective fascination with darkness or... Is it a testament to our innate curiosity and relentless pursuit of understanding? I would love to hear you write in and give me your opinion on this. So there you have it, friends. Chillingly haunting stories where art and crime collide, as well as a peek into the joint mind of modern day society and our intense fascination with true crime. I know I'm not the only one that I, probably the majority of shows I watch 
right now are true crime shows and I don't like it, but it is a fascination. And what is that saying about us? What is this obsession with true crime and serial killers and murder? You know, we separate ourselves so much from these evil humans, but what does it say about us that this is our form of entertainment? These tales remind us of the depths that art manifests, in this case, even harboring dark secrets. Thank you for joining us on True Crime Gallery, The Dark Side of Art. Until next time, remember, even beauty can have a sinister side. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Art Career. If you get value from this podcast, please consider helping me make more of these episodes by becoming an Art Career Premium member at theartcareer.supercast.com. That's theartcareer.supercast.com s-u-p-e-r-c-a-s-t dot com and please don't forget to rate and review every rating counts thanks so much